Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Start with the story. If you've been joining us throughout this Advent series, you know that each week we've been taking time to hear the story from the pen of an author that has something to say about what we're talking about. So today the story is drawn from the pages of the book written by Paul Arant, a book entitled More from Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. The story is entitled Knowing by Heart. These are Arant's words. The evening of June 25, 1886, in Rio de Janeiro, the Brazilians versus the Italians, and the Italians are losing. Not a war with guns, not a sporting event, an opera. The brawl had begun in the hall even before the curtain had risen, and on both sides of the curtain, total confusion, shrieking, stamping, whistling, jeering, just what pushed these ordinarily sensible artists and opera goers to the brink of physical violence is the rest of the story. First, the performers. A touring Italian opera company organized by impresario Carlo Rossi. Since this was to be a tour of Brazil, Signor Rossi, minding his diplomacy, was careful to choose a Brazilian as the chief conductor. Leopoldo Miguez was his name. Naturally, most of the opera singers, as well as first-chair orchestra members and the chorus master and the assistant conductor, <clears throat> were Italian. After all, it was an Italian opera company. So there they were in Brazil, mostly Italian performers with a Brazilian star conductor. Their first performance in Rio was the opera Faust. The next day's newspaper's reviews were scathing. No one in the touring company was happy. The Italian performers blamed their Brazilian conductor, calling him personally overbearing and musically incompetent. Simultaneously, the Brazilian conductor sent an open letter to the newspapers. The performance, he said, had been sabotaged by the foreigners in the company. The foreigners, meaning the Italians. The conductor's letter further stated that he was withdrawing from the company. And that brings us to that evening of June 25. A scheduled opera, Aida. Everyone in the audience had read the published complaint of their hometown conductor. Not only had the Italians insulted him, they reasoned, but in so doing, they had offended all of Brazil. What we have here is the making of a war. The opera goers, the culture crowd, ordinarily polite, sedate, have blood in their eyes. The assistant conductor, whose job it is to carry on, steps to the podium in the orchestra pit. There's a rustling of programs as the audience searches for his name in print. Assistant conductor, Superti, an Italian. Before Superti can raise his baton, a wave of jeers and whistles washes over him. Superti storms from the pit. Now it's impresario Rossi's turn. Planning to smooth the ruffled feathers with a kind word or two, he strides before the lowered curtain. Rossi, another Italian, and he too is drowned out, chased away. 
Backstage is humming, and not musically, who's left to take over? Moments later, the chorus master edges his way toward the podium. The whispered word travels like wildfire through the audience. Chorus master, chorus master, another rustling of programs. Chorus master, Venturi. Yet another Italian. An explosion of stomping and hooting. Goodbye, Venturi. Backstage once more, singers are weeping. Impresario Rossi is pacing. If this concert is canceled, the entire tour may be canceled as well. That would leave a lot of folks with no money and on the wrong side of the Atlantic to suit them. Meanwhile, back in the pit, one of the musicians stands, points, yells out, What about him? Let him try. He knows the opera by heart. The object of this sudden outburst is a 19-year-old cellist buried in the back section. A nobody that he had, at the tour's onset, been rather casually designated assistant chorus master is hardly a recommendation in and of itself. But this is no time for credentials. In seconds, he is being swarmed by the desperate opera cast. If not he, then who will bail them out? Elbowing his way through the confusion, Empresario Rossi approaches the bewildered young man. Even at a distance, the message is clear. Get out to that podium and do something, anything. The back row cellist obeys. As he rises before the conductor's desk, the audience is distracted from its turbulence. Who's this now? A cello player, someone says. An Italian? Who knows? He's not listed in the program. He might even be Brazilian. The musician who had singled him out was right about one thing. The young man does know the opera by heart. So much the better. With a flourish, the slender, dark-eyed youth closes the score in front of him. What is this? By memory? And as the strings begin the opening bars of Aida, pianissimo, a real-life legend is born. The young man, the obscure cellist who rose to the occasion, making it and himself a success, was almost not there that night. He had planned to play hooky from that particular performance. Buried in the cellos, he would not have been missed. Instead, he was besieged by his conscience, his musician's sense of duty, and because he was, because he showed up for the performance that evening, he awakened the next morning to critical acclaim and to his new post as chief conductor for the remainder of the tour. It was only after the opera had finished and the that the audience learned he, too, was Italian. But by then, in the wake of a splendid performance, it made little difference. Time alone would tell that the slender 19-year-old with deep, dark, penetrating eyes, the obscure cellist who almost missed the opportunity of a lifetime, was destined to be hailed as the greatest conductor who ever lived, Arturo Toscanini. Now, just in case 
you miss the lecture in class that day because you played hooky and didn't hear the lecture on Toscanini. Let me remind you that we are speaking of an astounding musical genius. We're speaking of a person who not only had musical genius but amazing memory. He is believed to have conducted 117 operas and 480 concert performances, both in rehearsal and live, totally from memory. That's Toscanini. And yet, that's not the reason I told you his story. The reason I told you his story is very simple. The reason I told you his story is that Toscanini was buried back here, oblivious, and thought, if I don't go, nobody will miss me. In the dark, on the edges, marginalized, forgotten. In fact, forgotten, that's the name of our Advent series this year. We have been wandering around the nativity set, listening to different members, the often overlooked characters of Christmas. We paused with Joseph, the neglected man, only to learn that God makes a specialty out of using the background, humble, gracious people of the world. And then we listened in on the experience of Zechariah, the speechless priest, who told us that even when we have been silenced, God is at work forming us, transforming us, making of us what he desires. And then last week, we were there on the temple grounds when a man named Simeon shuffled onto the center stage and encountered that young couple and held that baby and told us, you might spend all your life waiting, but God will fulfill his promise. And then today, the fourth overlooked character of Christmas. It's almost as though Simeon is just barely finishing what he's saying that she is there. No doubt a bit stooped, leaning on a cane, but she has heard, has seen what's happening, has gotten nearer, and when she realizes what is happening, I picture her as elbowing Simeon out of the way and saying, now I must speak. Her name? Anna. This worshiping widow, the fourth overlooked character of Christmas. Her story is told in Luke's Gospel, the second chapter, read so well by the three young women who read our scripture. Listen once more, starting with verse 36. Luke writes, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, she's been alone for a very long time. We're not exactly sure because Luke writes in the original in a way that makes it a bit uncertain as to how exactly her life unfolded. But at least 60 years, at least 60 and maybe more, 60 years 
is a long time. Don't get personal. Don't point at my beard. What was it that happened 60 years ago? 1963. One news outlet designates that as the year that everything happened. Some of you will remember, others will not. 63 was when John F. Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, was assassinated in Dallas. 63 was when Beatlemania was erupting. When the Supreme Court of the United States rules that the Lord's Prayer or Bible verses could not be required in public schools. When the Moscow-Washington hotline was established in an attempt to prevent nuclear war. The Civil Rights Movement was gaining strength in 63, moving the United States in a more just direction. More than 200,000 marched on the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., and were there electrified by Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream. Zip codes were first introduced by the U.S. Postal Service, who also raised first-class postage rates from four cents to five. You remember that? Dr. James Hardy performed the first successful lung transplant. Instant replay was used in football for the first time in the annual Army-Navy football game. AT&T introduced the first touch-tone phone. And finally, in 1963, the following people were born. Johnny Depp, Michael Jordan, Brad Pitt, Whitney Houston, Lisa Kudrow, Mike Myers, Helen Hunt, and don't be thinking that. I wasn't born in 63. <laughs> 63 is, 60 is a long time ago. 1963 is a long time ago. And for at least that amount of time, this woman has been by herself, has been waiting. Now, Luke doesn't give us right here very much insight into Anna, who she was, what she believed, how she felt, what her life was like. In fact, the one thing he does say here is that at the end of this encounter with the baby, she gives thanks to God. So we know she has a grateful heart. But we don't know much else, not unless we peer behind the words. I want to suggest to you that Luke gives us three words or groups of words that give us an insight into this woman, Anna. The first one is a couple of words that appear right in the middle of verse 36, where Luke writes, she was very old. Now, in the original, he writes in such a way so as to make clear that she was very aged. That's why the NIV doesn't say she was old, but that she was very old. What does that mean? In her day, at times, it meant that one was honored, but not always. What does it mean, those of us, those of you, those of us, who have pulled more pages off the calendar than we can count? What does that mean? It means that slowly but surely you get edged out of the center of life, increasingly toward the margins of life. It means that as you get further from the center of the conversation, you begin to realize how muffled is your hearing. You can't always hear what's happening, what's going on. And when you do hear, the words, the lingo are unfamiliar to you. Are they speaking English? What did they just say? 
as you get further and further to the margins, you realize what it feels like to be forgotten. That's one statement Luke makes. But he makes a second one. He makes a second one that follows that. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Widow. That's an emotionally evocative word. We know what that means. It means a doctor says, ma'am, I am very sorry to tell you. It means a doorbell rings at midnight and an officer stands there and says, we believe the other driver was drunk. It means a quiet, subdued sanctuary, the the quiet tones of the organ. It means muffled sobs. It means family and friends who rally around. But it also means an understanding of what has often been said about grief, and that is this. When you're grieving, you learn who your real friends are. Because when the service ends, people, and we understand this, have to go back to their life. They have jobs. They have families. They have schedules. They have commitments. And so that word widow, that word widower, means that you feel forgotten. But Luke isn't quite done yet. Back in that simple, short passage... He also adds this, halfway through verse 37, she never left. I want you to remember those two words, never left. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Never left. It's his hyperbolic way of saying every time the church doors opened, there she was. And that's not hard to understand, is it? When the church doors open, it offers the promise of some kind of human connection. It offers the promise of a community of people who bring her needs and her prayers before God. No wonder Luke pins, she never left. She was constantly there. Now, William Barclay, the old Scottish scholar, says that a couple of things are true about Anna. First of all, it's true that she knew sorrow, but not bitterness. That's a delicate balance. For those who truly know sorrow and truly experience their sorrow, it is easy for that sorrow to become a destination rather than a journey. But not for Anna. She knew sorrow, but not bitterness. But secondly, Barclay tells us, she knew age, but not hopelessness. She knew what it was for the years to pass, and yet she also knew what it was for her hope to remain vital and vibrant and future-focused. Our question is immediately, how is that possible? To know sorrow but not bitterness, to know age but not hopelessness, how is that possible? Barclay answers by saying, because she always did two things. She never stopped praying. She never stopped worshiping. She just kept participating in those two disciplines. 
Jesus. So her sorrow never turned bitter, and her age never turned hopeless. She never left, is how Luke says it. So as I was reading about Anna, picturing Anna, I thought, there's a quote. There's a quote I have for Anna, a quote that describes Anna, a quote that maybe Anna herself could have uttered. I found it buried in my computer files. I placed it there years ago. And I looked at the bottom of the quote, and it said, author unknown. I thought, that's curious. Well, that was way back then, way before AI, right? AI can tell us who authored the quote. So I went to my Ch- Ch- Chatster, my AI app, and I typed in who authored this statement, and then I cut and pasted the quote into the Chatster at, app and hit go, and it came back almost immediately with this. It said, this statement is attributed to American writer and philosopher Samuel Ullman. Okay. But then right beneath that little box is another little box that says, tell me more. So I said, all right. I hit that button, tell me more. And then I got this. Apologies for the confusion. The statement is actually attributed to American clergyman and social reformer Henry Van Dyke. Hmm. All right. Now I didn't feel quite as confident, and I saw that little button, tell me more. So I clicked on it again, and I got this. I apologize for the incorrect information. After further research, it appears that the statement you provided is often attributed to American writer and philosopher Douglas MacArthur. Writer and philosopher? Okay. And there's that little box. Tell me more. So I clicked on it again. Definitely not feeling as confident. And this time it said... I apologize for the confusion caused by the conflicting information. After thorough research, that's what it says, after thorough research in the last three seconds, it seems that the statement you provided does not have a specific author. (laughs) It seems that it could be attributed to various people throughout history. Samuel Ullman, Henry Van Dyke, Douglas MacArthur, And so I quit. Said, okay, whoever wrote it, here's what it says. You're as young as your faith, as old as your doubt, as young as your self-confidence, as old as your fear, as young as your hope, as old as your despair. So long as your heart receives messages of beauty, cheer, courage, grandeur, and power from the earth, from humans, and from the infinite one, so long are you young. But when all the wires are down and all the central place of your heart is covered with the snows of pessimism and the ice of cynicism, then you are grown old indeed, and may God have mercy on your soul. And I said, maybe it was Anna who first thought of the words. 
Because as I pictured her, I saw an older woman on a cane shuffling onto the temple grounds as she always did. And then I saw her encounter a baby, the baby. And then I think, I think, I think I saw her skip out of the temple, grabbing every passerby on the way and telling each one, I have met the baby. He changed my life, and he can change yours. Gracious God, some of us are buried in the back row of the orchestra, marginalized, alone, forgotten. But if these four people have told us anything, they have told us that you specialize in people like us. Thank you for the baby. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.